Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Melanie Mitchell. She's a professor at the Santa Fe Institute, and her current research focuses on conceptual abstraction, analogy making, and visual recognition in artificial intelligence systems. Melody is the author or editor of six books and numerous scholarly papers in the fields of artificial intelligence, cognitive science, and complex systems. Her book, Complexity, is still, to my mind, the best beginner's introduction to complexity science, and I recommend it highly for those of you listeners out there who want to learn more about this complexity stuff we're always talking about. That's Complexity by Melanie Mitchell. Her latest book is Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans, and she also has a substack called AI, the initials, A Guide for Thinking Humans. Anyway, welcome back, Melanie. You've been on the show many times. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting and actually a little bit humorous as I was prepping today. Melanie had published an essay, I think on her Substack, I'm not 100% sure, called Did ChatGPT Really Pass Graduate Level Exams? And very good, careful analysis, but alas, it was on ChatGPT 3.5. <laughs> and what's that was on February 9th, the way we are now, end of March. So, you know, if we can say that dog years are seven to one to human years, what are generative AI years? A hundred to one? You know, it just feels like <laughs> 10 years have gone by since, yeah. since the 9th of February. So I think yeah. we're, we're, we're going to start with that question. I mean, what does ChatGPT, are you up on what ChatGPT4 is doing on these exams, which is much better? Yeah, so I, you know, I read the 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 paper that OpenAI put out about GPT four, which they gave various standardized exams in lots of different areas, and it did great on all of them except, evidently, AP English, <laughs> which it did not score well on at all. But you know. It's doing amazing, obviously, but I, you know, my my concern with the the Chat GPT three point five, if you like, I think those concerns are still relevant when talking about giving standardized exams to these language models. Let's dig into it. Yeah, right. So, like, what what does it mean when you give a human a standardized exam or any kind of test? You know, you you're you're making assumptions that the performance on the test will carry over to concepts that are relevant to you know the test that 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 your performance on the test will mean something in in the real world yeah like if you pass the pass the medical exam you can probably take somebody's tonsils out without killing them right yeah possibly although you know there is some question about that <laughs> uh, but you know that you will that if you were given another test, you know, with different questions, but around the same topics, the same testing, the same concepts that you, you would still do well. So, you know, there's all kinds of issues with giving these language models, these tests. One is you have to ask, well, did question those questions or similar questions appear in its training data? And the way that these tests are made for instance, by say the college board, which makes AP tests, that they come up with new questions every year, but the questions are similar, you know, they're sort of rewritten in certain ways. And so you wonder sort of how, what's been in the training data and how much is the system actually responding due to its kind of mem memorization or compression of previous text that it's encountered that's similar to the questions that it's being given. So, you know, to test that, I back in the ancient history of GPT 3.5 or chat GPT, you know, I tested this. I, I took a question that, so this was for an MBA exam from a Wharton MBA professor. 
And he published a paper where he gave this question to MBA students on his test. He gave it to ChatGPT and it produced an answer that he said was great, it A plus answer. So I took that same question and I rewrote it with a, a kind of a the same exact problem, but with a different kind of word scenario, and found that ChatGPT didn't do well on it at all. And we know that these systems are very sensitive to the prompts that they're given. And so you have to ask if it does very well on one question, but can't an can't answer the exact same question with slightly different, you know, word scenario, how much does it actually understand about the underlying concepts? Now with GPT-4, obviously it does, it's doing better than all of these standardized tests that they've given it according to their, you know, technical report. But none of us can really test that because number one, we don't have access to GPT-4. We can have some restricted access through the, you know, new chat, GPT interface, but we don't have access to the model that it that they gave the test on, so we can't really probe it. And we also don't know what exactly the material is that they tested on. So I think there's a lack of transparency here that's making it difficult to actually do science. Yeah, that's really, really annoying. And in fact, a number of us out here in the field keep saying, hey, OpenAI, why don't you change your name to closed AI? Because OpenAI is definitely not what you're about at the moment. Yeah, I think it, you know, the the original plan for OpenAI when it was founded was to be really a research lab rather than a commercial company. And things change when you get into the world of, you know, having a bottom line and, and, and customers and so on. $15 billion worth of investment from Microsoft, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's really so, a very, very different game. But I'm going to use this as a chance to point out something I think very important for research purposes, based on a podcast I did the other day with Siobhan Shupirowit from Eleuther. AI. He also works at Stability AI. Turns out Stability and Eleuther are working on a joint venture where they will very soon, uh, he just kept saying soon, be producing a ensemble of full open source models, including the software that build them, including the data sets. And they're going to range in size from one gigabyte model to about 80 gigabyte model, which they estimate will be about as powerful as ChatGPT 3.5. And importantly, they were all built using exactly the same data set and Many of them were processed in exactly the same order, and they did some experiments with models where they used the same data, data set but parsed in different orders, and they're going to make all of that available to people, and it was specifically designed for being able to do stable, interesting scientific research. So if OpenAI isn't helping the research field, this uh, Eleuther stability project should be huge. I'm very, really excited about seeing this. Yeah, I think that's great. And there are other, you know, there's other companies like Hugging Face and even Meta, which has open sourced some of their language model software. So there are going to be opportunities to, to do real science on these systems. But right now, you know, what we have more is kind of these companies like OpenAI and Microsoft saying, trust us. Here's a paper we wrote that looks like a scientific paper, but you can't check any of it. Just trust us. This is what, you know, this is what these systems can do. And I think we really don't yet have a clear view of what these systems can and cannot do. That makes sense. I do like the interesting finding that if you take the same prompt and go with essentially a synonym of the prompt, it may not do nearly as well. Yeah, this is, you know, gets into this whole area of what's called prompt engineering. Yeah, I just did an I did an experiment this morning where I uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is how do I use GPT as a skyhook for itself? And one of its problems, as we know, is it hallucinates like crazy, just makes stuff up. And particularly things on the fringe, you know, you ask it for the biography of George Washington, it's pretty accurate. You ask it for the biography of Melanie Mitchell, it's going to be 
probably so-so. You ask it for the biography of Jim Rutt, very fringe character. It's <laughs> mostly wrong. It will attempt it. It knows who I am, quote unquote, but it's like mostly wrong. At least GPT-3 was. GPT-3.5 was. Not 4 is surprisingly better. But anyway, I took 3.5 and I tried an experiment where a prompt I've used before to probe on it is, who are the 10 most prominent guests that appeared on the Jim Rutt show? You know, and it does know about the Jim Rutt show. It's got all the transcripts. I can tell mm-hmm. by asking it questions. And 3.5 of the 10, eight out of the 10 were hallucinations. There were no such <laughs> episodes, though they were very plausible. They were people <laughs> like Talib Nassim and you know Eric Weinstein and Richard Dawkins. And you know, every one of them were people that, yeah, if I could get them on my show, I'd probably get them on, or maybe I would. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't, usually I'll go for the really big names. But so I then tried an experiment where I took that prompt and I then asked GPT itself to generate 25 paraphrases of it. Mm-hmm. And then I tested those paraphrases to see how different the results were. And they were significantly different. The next uh, next step I need to do is automate. I just got my access to GPT-4 yesterday the, to the API, that is. I've had oh. the, uh, uh, you know, and with the API, I can now automate all this stuff and then start actually plotting in vector space where these answers are, check for the centroid, see if that's better. Is it better to take the average of them? But anyway, this idea of using JPT itself to generate synonym prompts, at least in you know 45 minutes of work this morning, looks fairly promising. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think there's going to be a lot of this kind of bootstrapping where you you ask it to critique its own answer and you ask it to kind of modify its own prompt, the prompt you gave it to be a better prompt for it. And I think all that stuff is going to end up being either it's take you into completely crazy land or really get it to actually do a lot better. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, and I, I will say that it was not obvious to me from doing maybe 10 of these by hand, whether there actually is a way to boost the signal from the noise. Because my, my original hypothesis, if I ran 100 of them and I did something like, uh, all right, let's just capture the number of times given names occur. If I take the top 10 of the names occurrence in 100 runs, will that actually concentrate to more real people or not? And I think I would say that doing a sample of eight of those runs was not enough to tell me one way or the other whether doing it at scale will work. But even if it doesn't work, I'll then have you know degrees of freedom to play with how the prompts are structured and things of that sort to see if we can find this skyhook where GPT can lift itself up. Yeah, I don't think that's ultimately I I don't think that there's. You know, you would you would assume that that would only work if there's some kind of statistical signal there, that like you know my name having been on your show would have a stronger statistical association than Richard Dawkins or somebody. But I'm not sure that that's there. <laughs> well, it's there for GPT four. GPT four. When I ask it the ten, nine out of ten are correct. And oh, by the way, you, you turn up as one of the 10 most prominent. Oh, excellent. <laughs> and, and the only hallucination is an extremely plausible one, which is Jeffrey West. Ah, oh, I'm surprised he hasn't been on your show. <laughs> yeah, we, were actually, we were actually scheduled to do it about two years ago, two or three years ago, and he fell down a flight of stairs and, mm-hmm. and couldn't do it. So, and we haven't gotten around to reschedule. But you know, four is much, 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 much better on that regard. But uh, here's my hypothesis on this question. And I originally came up with this, not thinking about sort of auto-generation of paraphrase queries, but what happens when we have indifferent LLMs that are based on different training sets and different algorithms? Could we create an oracle based on having, say, 25 different models and take the centroid of the answers in, say, latent semantic space, and would that be a significant boost? The theory being, I mean, the hypothesis, not yet a theory, a hypothesis, is that the hallucinations are less correlated than the correct answers. So that there's, you know, a, a greater entropy in the in the hallucinations than there is in, in the correct answers. And therefore, over time, with a big enough N, the signal of the correct answers will start to stand out. And of course, that depends on, you know, the, the correlation and the correlation between the models and a bunch of other statistical attributes of what these hallucinations are really all about, which I don't think yeah. anybody yet really knows. 
Yeah, well, and I'm you know curious why GPT four was better if it's been trained on more data or if it has some other kind of mechanism for being less prone to hallucinations. Yeah, it's a be interesting question, but unfortunately, we don't know. And yeah. you know, we do know that the parameter model is something on the order of it's five or six times. I guess I got the definitive number the other day, 1.3 trillion parameters. So it's about eight times bigger than the best of the GPT 3.5s. I'm curious how you got that number because they didn't publish that. Well, I have my sources. <laughs> And I've heard I've heard numbers all over the place from one trillion to a hundred trillion. And this person I would put at B plus quality source. Ah, okay. And, and he was pretty definitive. The number was one point three. I've heard I have also heard all kinds of n- rumors about numbers, but yeah. <laughs> and, and that may just be for the tech side. I'm sure it may not include the the multimodal stuff, which is I guess they're now starting to surface over on Bing. I haven't had a chance to play with that yet. That's going to open up this whole damn thing to a whole nother level. Yeah, yeah, that'll be really interesting. Yes. So uh, let's get back to this idea of comparison of GPT-X performance versus humans on things like standardized tests. Yeah. So I guess the real question is, you know, when we, when we formulate test questions for humans, we make a lot of assumptions about human cognition, namely that, you know, well, one obvious one is that human hasn't like memorized all of Wikipedia. <laughs> Or, or as somebody put it, you know, most babies haven't been trained on all of GitHub code. So so the tests that we give, when we give humans, we we make certain assumptions that allows us to kind of extrapolate. You know, and extrapolation is not perfect. You know, your score on the SAT, of course, doesn't predict in very great detail your likely success in life or whatever. But there is some things that can be extrapolated. But I'm not I don't think it's been shown that those same things can be extrapolated from large language models passing these tests. So I, I you know I think we kind of have to figure out how to probe them in a, in a more systematic different way than the way that we probe humans. That makes sense. I, you know, let's think about that for a second. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to let GPT loose with a scalpel and uh, do medical stuff, but <laughs> be safe enough to have it write uh, legal briefs. With with editing, you know, I wouldn't let it do it autonomously. Well, I would let it do it autonomously for the purpose of an experiment and have first-year associates do some and have GPT do some and then have do blind analysis by, let's say, law school profs, give them grades and see if how GPT does on performance of you know the actual work, which is say you know writing a relatively routine set of legal briefs on issues, which is exactly the work that first year, at least some of the work first year legal associates do. And I just have was chatting with a guy uh, the other day who has a law firm, and he says uh, his view is he can cut his associates by two thirds, hire slightly smarter associates than he normally does. He's not a big law firm, so he doesn't usually get to hire the Yales, but you know he may move from Ohio State to Notre Dame or something. And say, instead of hiring 12 from Ohio State, I'll hire three from Notre Dame and give them GPT-4. And he thinks that's a winning strategy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's already companies, I think, that are doing doing that kind of service in in the legal sphere. And yeah, legal, legal and accounting seem to be really certain parts of legal and accounting, not the heavy duty reasoning and counseling part, but right. the yeah the straightforward part. All right, let's file a UCC lien on this block of a hundred railroad cars or something like right. that. Right. Yeah, I think that there's there's a good chance that that will work well. But, you know, you can't, I still think you can't let it be autonomous when you're actually using it in a real situation, like a a real legal kind of encounter where the the stakes are real. (laughs) Because these things can make unpredictable errors. And they're good. They're great a lot of the time, but they, they are not thinking the way that we think. They're not reasoning the way that we reason. They don't know, understand the world the way we understand the world, and therefore, they can make mistakes. And they're, as you saw with your experiment with the GPT-4, they're as confident about their mistakes as they are about 
their you know correct answers. Yeah, I give this example all the time that one of the things that makes them dangerous is that they don't know they're lying. If you talk to a detective, I happen to be from a police family. My father was a cop for 20 years. My brother was a federal law enforcement for 31 years. My favorite cousin was a cop. So anyway, I know a lot of cop lore and the cops will all tell you they can at a high level of probability, not 100%, tell if somebody's lying because when people lie, they their language structure is different. In particular, they provide more detail in certain off areas than you would expect. And of course, as parents, we know that our nine-year-olds, when they lie, the lies just sort of feel different than the truth. But because ChatGPT does not know it's lying, its hallucinations aren't linguistically different than its truths, which actually is something that, that works around our traditional ability to detect lies. Right. I mean, they don't have a model of what's true and what's not true the way that we do. And therefore, they're using statistics. And the statistics of something that's untruthful to them is equal to the statistics of something that's truthful. So I don't see how they could tell the difference. Yep, they couldn't. And and they, and and that tricks us because normally lies have some stylistic differences from truth if generated by humans if they know if they know they're lying and they're not sociopaths. If they're sociopaths, you can't tell, right? Cuz right. That's just the way they are. Okay, before we move on from testing, I gave uh, GPT 3.5 a IQ test back on March 3rd. It was by the advice of a psychology professor I know. It's the vocabulary IQ test called VIQT. It was actually quite clever. And I think it had less of the risk of that, of it having found the artifacts, you know, the actual questions and the answers that may, may be biasing some of the other tests in that, because this thing generated five word lists and it and the, and the test was just to find the two words that were most similar in the five-word list. And at first, it was totally trivial, but eventually, it got pretty tricky. You had to have a big, big vocabulary to be able to do it. And when I gave it the full test, which took me about an hour, it came up with an IQ of 119, which I thought <laughs> which I kind of thought was interesting, which is about the level of a four-year college grad from a third-tier state university. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But that seems like an ideal task for a language model, given all, all the language that it's been trained on. Yeah, I was a little surprised that it actually didn't totally ace it. You know, when I started it, I said, you know, what's my prior here? I said, I would not be shocked if it entirely aced it, but not even close. It got 38 questions right and seven wrong out of 45. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sh probably, the, you know, GPT-4 would ace it or would do, but have a higher quote unquote IQ. But that, that's an, ex that's a great example of what I'm talking about, which is, you know, now a human with that level of, you know, that, that test is meant to not just test it, the human's like knowledge of vocabulary, but also some more general intelligence, right? Well, it at least assumes that that general, that G, the general intelligence function is relatively strongly correlated with the vocabulary IQ test, which it's nowhere near one, as it turns out. And it's not, sure. even, the, it's not even the strongest of the subtests, but it is relatively strongly correlated. Right. So, so, but then there, you know, d does that mean that the same is true for chat GPT? when you give it that test is, is that same correlation there? And I would say, I don't know, probably not, but that's something that that's an empirical question that, you know, giving that test, which is predictive of humans might not be predictive of machines. Yeah. It's funny. The very first assignment I gave chat GPT was basically ripping off an exercise from senior English and honors English in high school which was compare and contrast Moby Dick and Conrad's Lord Jim. It's the classic, you know, high school honors, you know, freshman English, third tier state university. And it did a credible, though not brilliant job. So I, you know, I, I suppose I could say that it was on that very subjective, unverified test. It kind of felt like an IQ 119, <laughs> In terms of its ability to write a literary essay, it was very disciplined. It was insightful enough. It wrote perfect grammar, of course. And they go, hmm, you know. So in that sense, it it knocked off the equivalent of an assignment that you might get in freshman English. 
Yeah. Well, I think this is a big challenge for us going forward is to figure out what are the right assessments to give these systems and that, that would actually predict their abilities in real world tasks. And there's a lot of people working on this. You know, there's a thing that people at Stanford put out called the holistic, you know, LLM or a holistic assessment for LLMs that tries to get more at that, that tries to get more at a better way to <laughs> test these things that will actually correlate to whether they can help us as doctors or lawyers or, you know, programmers or what other, other kinds of professional work in the real world, which is really the thing we want to know, right? <laughs> yeah, this looks like the paper, Holistic Evaluation of Language Models with about 40 co-authors. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I'll have to read that because yeah, yeah, this uh, you know this would this alone would be an interesting business, right? For any of you young entrepreneurs out there, remember, people, I'm too old and too rich to fool with this stuff. So all these ideas, please run with them. Right? Yeah, yeah. A company, a company like the the College Board, but that tests language models. And exactly. Stuff. There's a little idea for you, people. You could do it. So, yeah. so, so reminds me of the PC in 1980, where there was a zillion bits of low hanging fruit that one, two, three, five-person teams could easily knock off. Yeah, and, I think yeah. that's exactly the, 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 the analogy for where we are, is that this is like, kind of like the PC. It's this thing that's going to open up a huge number of applications, and it's, but it's going to take human creativity to do it. It's not already there. <laughs> yeah, and to your point, uh, most of the really valuable uses are going to be with humans in the loop for quite a while. As you said, you know, I wouldn't let a GPT for right a UCC filing that I was going to give to the court. Hell no, right? <laughs> but on the other hand, it may be able to do it with some oversight at a much higher level of productivity. I actually did use GPT early on for a productive purpose. I wrote a resignation letter from a board of advisors I was on, <laughs> and it's the kind of and it was a company I wanted to be remain on good terms with and had had a good experience. And so it was one of those letters that you had to write in a nuanced fashion. It probably would have taken me an hour to write a one-page letter with the right level of nuance. But instead, I just gave it the hints. It did a perfect job, better than I would have done spending an hour. Press send, done. So there was a basically, uh, it took five minutes at most. And so it was a 12 to 1 boost of productivity as a classic example of where humans in the loop and I didn't make any changes. I just had the quality control. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly what I wanted. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's exactly the right. And we're going to all be using these things for all kinds of things. You know, I use it to write code, but you know, to write little pieces of code that are things that, you know, would be kind of take me a couple of hours and it, it just spits it out and it has errors often, but then I can go fix the errors. Yeah, what I found for coding, and I'm, and to me, it, it's probably even more of an aid to me than someone who codes regularly. I go on these coding binges about once every six months to a year, and I don't do any coding in between. So my fingers forget how to write Python, for instance, right? And man, this time when I went back to writing some of this stuff around these models and also building my own chat bots and some things of that sort, wow, even chat GPT 3.5, almost perfect in writing functions, you know, so 10 to 30 lines of code, even if it was something fairly convoluted. And what's particularly impressive, at least in the Python space, where it seems to have very good coverage, is it really seems to know the APIs, right? So some new API that I'm using, and I don't know, it's syntax, you know, some complicated multi, many parameters. Man, it just knows how to do that. It's astounding. It's If it isn't, it's at least five to one for me, and maybe 10 to one, probably for an experienced programmer, it'd be or someone who's current day and days, probably maybe like but maybe not. But it's certainly certainly big. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on from assessments. Let's let some young aggressive folks build the uh, college board for LLMs. <laughs> we'll take advantage of it. Let's move on to a paper you co-wrote with David Krakauer, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. He's the president of the Santa Fe Institute. Very interesting fella. And the name of the paper is the debate over understanding an AI's large language models. Now. That is a mighty big question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the, this paper came about because, you know, I wanted to sort of summarize what are, the, what are people saying? Like, what are the sides in this debate? There's been a whole bunch of people on one side saying these language models can understand human language the same way humans do. And 
maybe even are conscious in some sense, you know, that's another debate too. Um, and we really should treat them as language understanders who understand the world the way we do, because they've been trained on language, which is kind of a, uh, intermediate representation of the world. Then there's a, another group of people you might call the stochastic parrot side who say, these things don't understand anything. They are just parroting in, you know, in a slightly more sophisticated sense, the language that they've been trained on and they're computing the probability of the next word, but they're not understanding. You know, we wouldn't have said that, that Google search engine understands your queries. It's, it's, it's using a, an algorithm that's not like a thing that understands. It's not the kind of category of thing that understands. So I we tried to sort of review what these people were saying and what the notion of understanding means in cognitive science, you know, how psychologists and neuroscientists and so on talk about human understanding or animal understanding and how it compares with the these systems. So basically the the idea is the word understanding really isn't it's it, it, it there's a lot of stress on it today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the word understanding is not well understood. Absolutely not. <laughs> and that's the problem. It's there's too much it's it's a word that can't take the new stress that is being put on it by these language models. Oh, that's beautiful. Because this is something I keep saying is that we may learn a hell of a lot more about intelligence, consciousness, cognition, understanding from having to deal with these LLMs. It's forcing us to clarify our thinking. And AI has done that throughout its history, you know, from the very beginning. I mean, back in the, the 1960s and 70s, people were saying that to, to get a chess playing computer, a system that could play at the level of a grandmaster or be, the, be a world champion, you would have to have full-blown human general intelligence. And clearly, AI proved us wrong, right? Absolutely. <laughs> we would not, we don't, don't want to say that deep blue is intelligent. They can't even drive a car, goddammit. And it's just a kind of a, we don't want to say that intelligence is brute force search. I mean, at least I don't want to say that. So I say, okay, maybe that's not what, maybe we were naive about what intelligence is. Maybe we don't understand. And, and these new artifacts that are created by AI, by people working in AI will pressure us to refine and clarify our understanding of what these mental terms mean. Yeah, you mentioned one, which is one of my pet peeves, because the area I work in the most is the scientific study of consciousness and areas around the possibilities of machine consciousness. And that conversation is a complete botch, right? You know, the people, the guy got fired from Google saying that their language model was conscious. He said right? sentient. Sent, did he say sentient? Okay, yes, but, which maybe yeah. is not, I mean, that's... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then what? The difference between sentience and intelligence, and we you know the big the big takeaway. I keep trying to remind people is that consciousness and intelligence overlap, but not necessarily a lot in certain places. You know, something like self driving car is pretty intelligence. Dealing with navigating in high complexity on high stakes tasks, uh, lots of different tasks it has to deal with, pretty open ended. But is it conscious? Really hard to imagine. On the other hand, you know, a toad is probably conscious at a relatively rudimentary level in the John Searle sense of consciousness, which is the one I happen to like. And yet, in terms of higher order intelligence, got lots of lower order intelligence at keeping its body working and, you know, uh, digesting flies and things like that. But in terms of higher level consciousness, it doesn't have a hell of a lot. It would not score high on any IQ test. And, and yet, it's got consciousness. So the, and, and then, the, of course, you even run into the strange cases of humans with severe brain damage where much of their cortex is gone or their hippocampus memory building areas are gone. And yet they're still clearly conscious. So, uh, <laughs> you know, consciousness and intelligence are – there's some overlap, but they're by no means the same thing. And people get them so confused. Well, even intelligence, you know, is not a, a single thing. It's very multidimensional. And I think 
saying, you know, when we talk about machine intelligence and we talk about human intelligence, they're different things. And, or at least people don't mean the same thing when they use the term. And I think the same thing is true with understanding. And I, you know, one of the things we talked about was this notion that humans have this very strong desire, maybe innate, to compress, to understand via compression, to take some complicated thing and to compress it into something like, you know, Newton's laws or, you know, what we might call lower dimensional representation of the thing. We have these concepts of the world, which are not equal to the world, but they're compressed sort of models of the world. And these large language models don't have that same evolutionary pressure to to build compressed models. At least we don't think they do. They don't, you know, one thing, we we have a, a very small working memory, whereas, you know, GPT-4 has a context window. That's how much, how many tokens of text it can take in of like 32K tokens, right? You can't keep 32K tokens in your working memory. It just won't work. You have to build abstractions. You have to build compressions. And that, so therefore, I think we have a different kind of understanding that maybe will end up being more generalizable than what these language models have. And I actually heard, I heard a really interesting talk from the AI researcher, Yashua Bengio in Montreal, talking about how you know this constraint of working memory is something that maybe is the secret to our, our intellectual abilities that these machines won't have. Yeah, or it's, it, I, I, again, I study this stuff a lot. And the architecture of our cognitive cognition, our conscious cognition, which includes certainly working memory as a huge bottleneck, has stereotyped our, con- our cognition in a certain way that turns out to be good enough to achieve general intelligence. Though it's nothing at all, as you point out, like the large language models, quite the opposite. In fact, when I'm hypothesizing on this, I put forth the concept that what's allowed higher animal intelligence is something like heuristic induction. Because of all these bottlenecks, we need to find small rules that have high leverage. And so far, at least, these large language models don't have any evolutionary pressure towards that at all. Exactly. And and it's interesting because I I put on the Twitter yesterday, one of my first projects, once I get my APIs fired up, is to build some hierarchies of memory exterior to the LLM and an attentional mechanism that works with those memories and see if I can somehow coerce the LLMs to act like the unconscious processes that we use for understanding and producing language, but not be the repository for you know, all the various hierarchies of memories that we have. It may be just a pipe dream, but it seems like something that could be fruitful. One of the things that we have that these language models don't have also is a long-term memory. You know, you, you can say they have a long-term memory in that they have these, you know, billions of weights or trillion now maybe that are storing everything, you know, the, what they've learned from their training data, but they don't have a memory of like, you know, I remember back when we had a conversation two years ago, and I remember all you know different interactions I've had with you. I remember I have experience, you know, episodic memory that forms my own sense of self that these systems don't have. They're lacking that, and I think that is something that's going to limit some of the things that they can do. Yep, absolutely. So that's you know. They're different, but maybe people will be, you know, as you say, building on extra parts or integrating these parts and making them much more human-like. Yeah, and then again, if we, you know, look at work people like Antonio Damasio and Neil Seth, etc., who focus on embodied cognition with animal cognition, emotions clearly have a large amount to play in the final decisions that we make, even if we don't want to admit it. You know, Damasio has, you know, is a a clinician in addition to a researcher, and he's had patients who had, you know, essentially problems that destroyed their emotional machinery, and they couldn't decide what to have for breakfast. Because right. uh, you know, at the end of the day, the tipping factor is 
emotion or intuition or whatever we want to call it. It's some bodily signal that says, all right, of these options that are there, we're going for this one. And I've long thought that, you know, if we look at the mathematics of inference, if you try to do it formally, this was where, what was that language we used to fool around with in the 80s that was prologue? Yeah, it would, it would fail because of the combinatoric explosion of inference. It just got too big too fast. Using working memory, the limited conscious contents, and emotion as a very simple-minded picker is a kind of a hack to get around the combinatoric explosion of inference that mm-hmm. allows a relatively low CPU, low clock speed device to actually process the world. Well, emotion, you know, emotions probably evolved because we are such a social species. At least that's one of the reasons, you know, we have to deal with each other and we have to in, in sometimes have motivations that emotions, you know, are very key to that, that enable our, our in social interactions. And we have to care, you know, this is, there was a great article a couple of years ago by the philosopher Margaret Bowden about, say, I think the title was something like, AI won't take over the world because it doesn't care. <laughs> and it, 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 I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. Like how much does caring matter for intelligence? You know, you have AlphaGo, which is better than any human Go player, but it didn't care. So maybe caring doesn't matter for that kind of game playing, but does it matter for like actually being, uh, you know, intelligent in the real world. It's an interesting question. Well, in some sense, couldn't you say AlphaGo's care was its definition of the loss function of winning games? I don't think that it had any emotion, anything like emotion around that. That it, you know, that's a very impoverished view of caring, you know. That's like goes back to like, does the thermostat want to keep the temperature uh, <laughs> constant. <laughs> of course, Tononi would say the thermostat is conscious at the level of one bit of phi, which... Yeah, no, I... I yeah, I don't, I'm not that comfortable talking about consciousness because I think it's so... There's so many different definitions and it's so, you know, vague and ill-defined. Well, let's get back to understanding. What <laughs> else did you guys lay out in your paper on understanding? Well, we said there there might be, maybe we should be more pluralistic in our ideas about understanding that we have these different kinds of intelligences that maybe have a different kind of understanding. And so, you know, here's an example. AlphaFold, the, the program that predicted protein structure, did, did not have a kind of mechanistic physics model of, say, the electrostatics of protein folding and so on. It used a statistical model of correlations between known sequence structures and new sequences and some other information too. Did it understand protein structure? Well, not in the same way that we did, but it certainly did a better job of of predicting it. So maybe there's different kinds of understanding that will be useful in different kinds of circumstances. And we have to make better sense of what we mean by the term in these different systems. So that's, that was kind of the, 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 the paper. It was a plea for a new, new, better science of intelligence that will help us make sense of what's going on with these large language models and ourselves. Yeah, I do love this, actually, that it's forcing us to think about ourselves. And I sometimes will say just to annoy people, which I always enjoy, especially on Twitter, is, you know, I think the biggest takeaway from the LLMs is that humans are a hell of a lot more like LLMs than we would have ever thought. Maybe and maybe not, you know? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> I threw that out there to be intentionally provocative. Yeah, I mean, I clearly are, a big part of our intelligence is predicting what's going to happen. And that can involve predicting the next word or predicting the next, you know, frame in a video. And there's a lot of, of, of complexity that underlies our ability to predict. So maybe there's a lot of complexity that underlies these language models ability to predict, 
but I think we do it for different reasons. You know, we have a kind of a different evolutionary pressure on us than these models have. And I think that might make us the kinds of internal representations very different. So, you know, there's been some interesting research on like the, the how the language area of the brain that deals with like lang- the form of language, syntax, grammar, et cetera. Broca's region, right? Yeah. How, so how that, you know, some of the representations in that area can actually map onto representations in large language models. So Ev Fedorenko of MIT has done some studies that are really provocative in that area. But that's the idea of the form of language, as opposed to sort of what they call the function, the functionality of language that maps language to all of these, you know, bodily sensations and our our physical experience. And that's what the language models don't have. They don't have that kind of grounding. So in that sense, I don't think they understand the world in the same way we do. Yep. And the question is, could they, you know, if, if we hooked them? Could they? Yeah. So, so when, you know, David and I, David Krakauer and I wrote the paper, we got into a discussion because, you know, one of the things that he's, he was saying is, well, you know, we have this underlying f- f- physics model when we think of a situation, you know, or describe, read about a situation, we have a model of sort of the physics of what's going on. Whereas these language models don't have such a model of physics. I think that's kind of debatable, but the question is, could a model of physics come out of just learning from language? Is language rich enough to give these systems these kinds of intuitive physics models that we use to understand the world or the intuitive psychology models that we use to understand other people? Or is language not rich enough, a rich enough representation to give that? I think that's an empirical question. Yeah, and I think if we, a lot of us five years ago would have said, nah, language is not enough. But some of the more recent results, you know, may have, have us scratching our head. You know, I yeah. talk quite a bit with Josh Tenenbaum up at MIT, and he has built some simple, you know, like 18 month old baby yeah. AIs and things. And one of the things he built in was a physics model from the Unity game engine. Yeah. And he's found that it actually did help quite a bit, but it was something closer to, older style symbolic AIs than it is to trying to extract reality from just the most massive amount of language. And, and, you know, so I think the, as you say, it's an empirical question. I'd love to see what happens when the uh, multimodality comes in, when you start saying, all right, Mr. GPT, explain why this glass fell off the table, for instance, (laughs) right? I think of it as Ms. GPT. (laughs) No, uh, you're, yeah, exactly. I think that's going to be really interesting. And I think those systems have, in some sense, a better chance of developing these kinds of, of basic intuitive physics models. But yeah, we'll see. But you know, one of the things we cited in our paper was a, a survey somebody did a, of natural language processing researchers. And they asked a question like, do you agree or disagree with this statement? Um, Language will be sufficient to to be just training on language will be sufficient for an AI system to learn to understand language in some non-trivial sense. And half agreed and half disagreed. So there's definitely a big split. I don't know if that's changed in the last year, but <laughs> love to see that one redone. And of course, the other area where you know the people say, "Oh my God!" You know, somebody said today they've taken off the the old saying. You know, if, if World War Three is fought with nuclear weapons, World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones, right? And his his little witticism was, "When GPT four goes to war, GPT five will be fought with paper clips." You know. <laughs> And and I, I, I personally, because I do know how these things work, we know that they're feed-forward networks, right? There's no learning. There's no online learning yet. And you know, if you calculated Tononi's phi for ChatGPT, it would be approximately zero. You know, about about the same that 
you know, on order as a thermostat, maybe less. And I think we have, you know, it's, it's much all the blather about these things. It's useful to keep in mind what these large language models are, is that they're static feed-forward networks that were created one shot, and that's what they are. And while they're very interesting and surprising, they really are surprising, you know, until they have online learning, the ability to adapt themselves to the world as they meet it, et cetera, they're going to be something else than the kind of, you know, self-modifying intelligences that we are. Yeah, definitely. Although there's some interesting uh, claims about online learning taking place within the attention layers as the system's doing its inference. Yeah, I have read that. Uh, <laughs> have, you, have you dug into that research any? Do you have an Not opinion really. about that? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to understand that better. Yeah, I scratched my head about that, but you know, but, not to say. Yeah, but what, what's amazing when I, you know, when I talk to like journalists and in, in in the kind of public media, what surprises them is, is how much disagreement there is among experts about these systems and how they work and and what they can do and can't do. And you know, I think it's it is a, a bit amazing how little we understand them these things that we've created, how little we understand exactly what they are and what they can do. Yeah, that was actually the, probably the biggest theme for my podcast last week with Siobhan Shu Pirouette, is that we just don't know. It's amazing. They hear these huge, powerful technologies, and there is no theory yet on how they do what they do. And I did, I did have to ask, I had to ask him the, the complexity question. This is, you guys are building these models from one gig to 80 gig. Is there a phase change somewhere along the line where interesting emergences occur that didn't occur at smaller size? And he says, definitely there is. And it's around the size, at least for their model, around 10 gigabytes. Hmm. And of course, their model, they believe to be more efficient per parameter than chat GPT or GPT, the GPT family, which was just brute force. They have a, allegedly a clever way of building the parameter base. But he says, yeah, they could. you could see a whole class of emergencies above and not below. And unfortunately, I didn't have time to get into it. He may not. He, he's an, he was the engineer building it, not necessarily the scientist probing it. Right. So I'd love, I'd love to see, you know, some complexity-oriented scientists <laughs> work with this scale of models and see if they can set up some experiments that would demonstrate a relatively sharp phase change with respect to size, you know, and get back to Phil Anderson's old chestnut that more is different. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's the, you know, some, a great challenge for complexity science and I hope to take part in it. Yeah, Very cool. Well, I want to thank Melanie Mitchell, one of the smartest and most experienced <laughs> people in the AI world, who has been a wonderful guest here today and help us make sense of this unbelievably fast moving world. Probably next time we talk, we'll be a thousand years in LLM time. <laughs> exactly. <right? laughs> can't, can't, can't say anything because it's going to be disproven next week. <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. All right. Thank you again. And this has been wonderful. Thanks, Jim. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.